1: So tonight we're, also, we're completing the study of this book of Deuteronomy, and not only the book of Deuteronomy, but the entire Pentateuch. We've been at it now for almost three, four years, I don't remember. And um, it was not an easy study by no means, so thank you for sticking around that long. Many of you have been here for much longer. The uh, the study tonight is most appropriate for us because it um, covers chapter thirty two and thirty three of the book of Deuteronomy, which are the uh, poem that Moses spoke at the end of his life, as well as the blessing he gave the tribes of Israel. So we're going to go through that tonight, and uh, obviously ask question, The question that we need to ask is how does that apply to? us today. Scri- scripture has recorded all these texts for our benefit. Therefore, it isn't just a question of understanding an historical context, but always asking the question how does it apply in our lives as well. Let's begin with a the poem, therefore, in uh, um, chapter 32. It is, I think it, it'd be good for us to first point out that the style of the poem is typical biblical poetry. Uh, And uh, biblical poetry differs from modern American poetry and, in fact, Western poetry in general. Western poetry typically relies on um, rhymes, words that sound the same. But that's not the case of biblical poetry. Rhymes are not the most important element. They are structured differently. And the way they're structured is that they... uh, they have what is called conceptual rhymes or ideas, meaning that one idea echoes another. And that kind of um, echoing is far more common in scripture than rhythmic poetry you will find. In general, the the outline of that poem starts with what is called as an exordium, an exhortation that invites heaven and earth to pay attention to the beginning of the poem. And then there is a history of God's revelation with Israel, and that goes from verse four through eighteen, and then God's decisions, nineteen through forty-two, and the coda, which is a celebra- celebratory uh, finale of the poem, in verse forty-three. So the the way these poems work is that it, they they have what it's called parallelism, so. A, uh, a verse in that poem will be broken into what uh, scholars call a colon, C O L L O N, and uh, a verse may be made of one, I mean of two or three colons, so bicolon or tricolon. And they will be focusing either on synonymous notions or on uh, antithetic notions or synthetic notions or parallels. So for instance, Um, This is in verse 1, give ear, O heavens, let me speak, let the earth hear the words I utter. The the second colon is a repetition, if you will, a synonym of the first one, not synonym in terms of, uh, uh, it's not in its sound, the way it sounds, but in a way, in what it says, right? So give ear, O heavens, let me speak, let the earth hear the words I utter, verse 1. And you will find the same structure, for instance, in the annunciation of Saint Gabriel to Our Lady. That same exact structure is found there. The Holy Spirit will come upon thee, and the power of God will overshadow thee. That is parallelism, poetic parallelism in, in the scriptures. And uh, the point of it, obviously, is to stress. Re- recall that in Hebrew, there is no way of saying better. You can't say good, better, best. All that you can say is good, good, good. You stress it, and if you want to say it's the best, you say it three times, hence holy, 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 right? So the fact that you stress something twice, right, you are insistent. Right? You, you want to insist. And um, we do do that, for instance, when we speak. We don't do it exactly in that same structure, but we will say, I want you to listen to me now. Be quiet. And that be quiet is... A, is not a, it's not a synonym. It's a synthetic. This is the other form we're going to see. It complements what you said. Right? So I'll give you these examples as well. So an anti, antithet, antithetic, antithetic or antithetic, uh, this is a hard word to pronounce, example would be, our own hand has prevailed. None of this was wrought by the Lord. That's in verse 27. So saying, one, saying uh, a, a thing positively and then saying it negatively. We do that as well in our daily lives. When we might say, uh, let's say we bake the cake, and we might say, I made the cake, you didn't. Why am I repeating you didn't? If I made the cake, obviously you didn't. But it is our, it's part of human nature to have that need to say one thing and repeat it, emphasize it in a variety of ways, right? If I'm repeating something twice, it's because it's really important to me, and I want you to. Make, I want to make sure you got it. If I re, if I say one thing and say its opposite, obviously there is conflict, right? I bought the tickets, you did not. I ate the candy, you did not, right? Uh-huh. But if I said I ate the candy, yes, indeed, I ate that candy. I'm affirming something, and I'm, the, the emotional tonality is different, right? Uh, I'm, I'm pointing these things out to you specifically because these principles are found in the Psalms. The Psalms are all poems. They're poetic. Um, um, they're written in a poetic form, and these are constantly repeated in the Psalms. Obviously, when you read them in English, you're losing a lot of that contextual background. It does It doesn't flow as well in English or in French, for that matter. Those are non-Semitic languages, so we lose a lot of that flow. But it's important for us to sort of notice this when it's done this way and bring it back to an emotional context that we can relate to. So when we say things certain ways, we understand them. I bought the phone, you did not. We know what that emotional content is, even though you have no idea what phone I'm talking about. And you have no idea who I'm talking about. And you have no idea what the context that that these sentences apply in. But you still get what I'm saying because we share that emotional content. The scriptures are written with a Semitic mind, a Semitic way of thinking, different than a Western mind. So, therefore, there is loss of understanding of meaning and loss of understanding of the semantic content of scripture. I just said the same thing twice. Noticed? You notice I just did it twice? I did it, but you didn't notice. That's, again, an antithetic statement, right? Okay, You see there's a very different um, emotional content that is brought up between those two statements. One is far more congenial. The other is confrontational. And then the third one, obviously, is synthetic. He fixed the boundaries of peoples in relation to Israel's numbers. That's verse 8. So there, there is complementary information. I'm synthesizing, I'm completing the picture. I'm giving you the entire set of details. He fixed the uh, boundaries of peoples in relation to Israel's numbers. So this is how poetry tends to be written in the scriptures. Not so much focused on rhythmic poetry as we would, but is mostly focused on conceptual relationship between these verses and the emotional tonality that they're supposed to produce for us. So the, in, in, um, in exegesis, they call this thought rhythm, thought rhythm. So when you have a parallelism, that creates a thought rhythm, meaning thoughts that are similar to each other, but not necessarily sounding like each other. Biblical poetry shares these features with other ancient Near Eastern poetry, especially Canaanite. Canaanite, so for instance, Phoenicians. The Phoenicians would write poetry in the same way because all these people are uh, Semite. Uh, Just as modern poets have rhythmic dictionaries to assist them in composing uh, poetry, ancient poets had also a set of commonly known words which would create that kind of thought rhythm. And I'll give you some examples. Give ear and hear. Now, in English, it rhymes, but don't get confused. It's in the English right? In the the Hebrew, it does not. But the idea that you give ear and you hear, there is a thought rhythm going on here. You have two different ways of saying the same thing. Uh, Rain and dew, showers and droplets, all those were used uh, frequently in in, in the poetry. Create, make endure, that's in verse 6. Of old and ages past, that's in verse 7. So on and so forth. There's many, many more examples. So, anyways, I just want to give you a, a you know an, an introduction to that kind of structure because it's written very differently. Especially, if you go back and read that chapter, uh, chapter 32. You see, it very di- written very differently than the narrative style in all the other chapters in the Deuteronomy. So, um, I thought it would be important to give you some keys to understand why it's written the way it is, the way it was written. Now, in section two, after the introduction. It shows God's faithfulness and Israel's betrayal of him, which is the core of the poem. So, the intro to the poem opens with a call to heaven and earth to pay attention. Now, why would uh, Moses call to heaven and earth to pay attention? we might be tempted, especially today in our scientific culture, we might be tempted to think it's just poetic form. He is personifying heaven and earth and calling upon them to hear what he has to say. But in fact, there is far more going on here than just poetry. Um, what, is the, what is the relationship of a nomadic tribe to heaven and earth? How do, they, how do people in pastoral cultures interact with heaven and earth? What do they expect from heaven and what do they expect from earth? And my question is very practical here. It's not philosophical. There's nothing philosophical about it. The rain from heaven and Exactly, exactly. Rain from heaven and growth, food, crops from earth. Get it? So when he says give ear, what is he calling heaven and earth to do then? That expression, give ear, means what? If you're giving ear to what someone is saying, what are you? Listening, Listening yeah. So Pay you're paying attention. Think of it in juridical terms. What are you? In juridical terms. Raise your voice. I cannot hear you. No, no, no. If, you're, if, you, if you give ear and you listen, where do you do that in a court? Judging. Yes, but when you are, especially when you are a witness. If you're a third impartial party, that has nothing to do with it, with the case. You're giving ear. You're now witnessing. We're standing as a witness. Yes? How many many witnesses, I'm sorry, did Moses call upon here? Two. Two. Why did he call upon two? Why not heaven only, or why not earth only? Why heaven and earth? Two. Why? Because the 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 Deuteronomic laws called for how many witnesses? Two. Two. So therefore, this poem is cast in what? It's a lawsuit. It's a juridical covenantal lawsuit. That's why it starts with give ear, O earth, listen, O heaven. Two witnesses that Moses is calling upon. What is, what is the other aspect of the, the Deuteronomyical the law when it comes to witnesses? If two witnesses say that someone is guilty, what are the witnesses supposed to do then? Implement the judgment. Implement the Punishment. The punishment. Remember, we saw that. If you stand as a witness and you say, I saw so and so did this and that, then if the punishment is death, you are the one who implement the punishment. Yes? So therefore, what is heaven and earth to do then? They're supposed to do what? Implement the punishment. How would heaven and earth implement the punishment? No, no raindrop, no crops. No. You understand now? So this is not a cute little thing. Give ear, oh heavens, and listen, earth. oh yeah, this is so... No, not at all. It's the exact opposite. Yeah? And the reason why we tend to be sidetracked is because our contextual understanding of the scriptures is always modern. I told you about the fact that there is an infiltration, a cultural infiltration from the world into our conscience. The way the world looks at things tend to redefine the way we look at things. So we're no longer biblically centered. Right? And when that happens, we are then adding to the difficulties or challenges of understanding scriptures because we come to it with a modern filter. Which in most cases is wrong, superficial, with no depth and no understanding. So I'm pointing these things to you because it takes pondering to understand scriptures. This is why if you notice in these studies we've never done a study where I ask you, so what did scripture say to you today? There are quite a few Bible studies that go on like that where people get together and they kind of want to have this sort of warm fuzzy interaction with scripture. Well in principle this is a wonderful thing to do. The problem is if you don't have a proper grounding and do all this heavy lifting and go back to the meaning of the text and make sure that you reprogram your conscience to become biblical, you can go astray very quickly and very easily by doing these types of studies. So they're dangerous. You have to be very careful. Somebody invites you to some of those. Because they become Scripture becomes the vehicle for expressing my concerns and my problems and my issues instead of me becoming the vehicle of God speaking to me through Scripture. Very different, yeah. So we don't do scripture, we don't do Bible study here for the sake of the Bible. We do Bible study here for the sake of what? Yeah, yeah, but for the sake of what exactly? To get a relationship with God. Yes. How? Where? The liturgy, the Mass. Everything we do here is oriented to the Mass. Everything. You know that your Bible study is, is fruitful by the way you're celebrating the Mass. Because that's where you experience God's love. That's where you experience your love to God. Everything is in the liturgy. It's the fount and the summit of the entire spiritual life. We worship like God wants us to worship. We adore Him like He wants us to adore Him. And we express our love to Him the way He wants us to do it. Not the way we want to do it. Right? There is no I did it my way. There is I did it God's way. Yeah? So again, according to the Midrash Tanhuma, which, which is a commentary in an ancient commentary on scripture, a Jewish ancient commentary, Moses summoned them to punish Israel with drought and crop failure if it should uh, violate the covenant on the principle that the hand of the witnesses should be the first to act against the violators, which is in chapter seventeen, verse seven of the book of Deuteronomy. So then the very first thing that, that the poem does is recall the, the, the relation, God's relation with Israel, verses 4 through 18. And that God is entirely just and faithful, while Israel is faithless, foolish, and ungrateful. I want here to point out to you something that re- needs real pondering, particularly when it comes to our own examination of conscience. This is unique in the human annals. You can go look out there for any ancient writing you want. Chinese, Japanese, Indian, Hindu, um, Phoenician, Babylonian, Greek, Latin. Anywhere you want, you will never find that kind of brutally honest appraisal. Written by the people about themselves. Nowhere. Only in the Bible. In fact, if you read the ancient Jewish writings about their kings, which are outside scripture, it's flowery, it's beautiful. The kings are always honorable and just and wonderful and do great things. Then you read the book of King of Kings, and what is the refrain? And so and so became king, and so and so did evil in the sight of the Lord. Watch how Moses, in his poem, is not focused on the people. His focus is not the people. His focus is the Lord. You and I cannot love someone directly. It can never happen. It doesn't happen because we do not have love in us. I cannot give you what I don't have. I can only love you indirectly through the Lord. I have to go to the source of love and then from there give you what I don't have. Just as if you ask me for water Right. I don't open my shirt and there's a faucet there and I turn it and give you water. I don't have water, do I? What do I have to do? I have to go to a source of water and then bring you water. I'm the intermediary. But it is an enemy, yes? Moses' focus is on God, always. That's why he can speak so justly. So here's the question for all of us. When you do your examination of conscience, are you brutally honest with yourself? are we doing an examination of conscience every day at the end of the day and are we accusing ourselves of the things that we've committed and and thanking god for all the good things that we did many catholics forget that other side of it it's both it's both do we spend our time thinking, oh, so-and-so did this to me and so-and-so should this and then the other? And, or do we say, where did I go wrong here? Even in a situation somebody wronged me, do I still ask that question? If I am not, then I am allowing my heart, my heart to harden. I'm allowing my heart to become hard as flint. Forgiveness is not in me. Therefore, God's love is not in me. In this season of Advent, particularly when waiting for the coming of Christ, that is a great time to reflect on those things. To go to confession, if you haven't been to confession a long time, this is a great time to go to confession, to open ourselves to God's mercy because we need it and it's not in us. And that poem reflects that so clearly. God is faithful. God is just. And we would say about ourselves: we're faithless, foolish, and ungrateful. We're faithless because we are all prone to anxiety. Anxiety is a form of faithlessness. Let me ask you this question. Suppose you have anxiety about money. And now suppose I take you and I transport you into a vault that has $3 billion. And I say to you, it's all yours. Would you still have anxiety about money? That's interesting. Why would you still have anxiety about money? Because when, when a human they have money, they try always to keep it or make it make more. Yeah. So they're to... Alright, that's a very good point you're making. You have anxiety about what you would about how you fructify your money. But my question was simpler. Let's say your anxiety was about making sure you have enough to eat. Have enough money to eat. Now bring it into a vault that has three billion dollars. Are you still anxious about having enough money to eat? for the rest of your life. No. no. I completely agree with you that you might still have anxiety about, okay, what do I do with this money? How do I make more money? Understood. But let's set let's it aside. I'm not talking about money as making money. I'm just talking about money providing you with the necessities of life. You had that before. You didn't have it right now. Yes? Okay. So now let's assume furthermore that that vault was actually yours, but you somehow have forgotten about it. It's yours, but you don't know that it is yours. Yeah? Let's assume further that um, somebody knows that it is yours, and he's watching you act anxiously when he knows you have that vault with $3 billion. And then let's assume further that you don't ever go ask him for the key. How does this person feel about this whole situation? Okay, now meditate on that because that's how we treat God and all our anxieties. That's how we treat God. That's why we are, we have these moments of faithlessness, of foolishness, and of ungratefulness. Ungratefulness, right? We are unable to thank God for, particularly the things that bugs us the most, the things that, Where God comes and interrupts our lives. God comes and gives us a hardship. God comes and asks us to do something we don't want to do. Those are the gifts that he gives us to make us grow in his love. And we become ungrateful. Why are you doing this to me? I don't deserve that. And we focus on ourselves. And we don't see the gift that is hidden in the problem that we're facing. Why? Because we don't trust God enough to know that he will see us through. And then we will rejoice with him. Now I'm not saying any of this to pile guilt on your shoulders that's not what i'm trying to do that is not the point the point is to steer all our hearts to be more attentive to god's love and his presence in our lives and the way we read this poem is through these lenses that god is present that he's faithful and he's just and he's always here and he is mostly here when he does not seem to answer Next year we'll be doing a study on St. Luke. we are spending quite a bit of time on that mystery of fi- the finding of the temple, which is so complicated and so fraught with dangers and ways of misunderstanding it or misreading it. But Our Lady was looking for him for three days. He knew she was looking for him three days. And he was completely silent. There's a reason for that. So, typically, when then we lose our faith, we lose faith in the Lord, we, are, we think that He is not there for us, then we betray Him. This language is marital. This is a marital language. It's a relationship between God, who is the, the groom, and Israel, who is the bride. And from a marital angle, if you are married, the same thing happens in marriages. Our perception of how our spouse acts towards us can be completely misconstrued. We can, we, can, we can attribute to our spouse intentions our spouse never had. The devil is always there to help, of course. And hence, this is how dissension and arguments get into the picture. Because we trusted ourselves more than we trusted God. Because we had faith in our own self more than we had faith that God will see this marriage through. Especially especially when it is hard. And when it gets hard, it's because God has a resurrection waiting for us at the end of this Calvary. And if you read accounts and witnesses of couples who have been married for a long time, and I don't mean living together as in uh, like the, the way Lebanon and Israel live side by side, a state of no war. I'm talking truly loving couples who have happy marriages, you will see that they have been purified and they have grown in that love through the action of the Lord. And so it is so imperative, so imperative you know people who are contemplating getting married to a non-Catholic that you warn them gently, kindly, but sternly about the dangers ahead. This is marital language. God is always faithful. Israel is faithless and foolish. Come on. Now, it is very interesting to point out that this poem that you see here was not sitting in the dustbins of history. In the second temple, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, tells us that this was part of the liturgy of the temple. This poem was read while the... um, the additional offering, called Musraf, was being made on Sabbaths. They completed this reading over a 6 weeks period. So it was a liturgy that lasted six weeks. During that six weeks, they read portions of that poem in the temple. Nowadays, today, this poem is read on the Sabbath between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. In the Sephardic liturgy, it is read on the 9th of Av, Abib, the anniversary of the destruction of both temples during the morning service in place of the song at the sea, which is Exodus 15. So it's very much alive in the liturgy of Israel from which, obviously, the church received her liturgy. So if you hear people tell you, well, we invented all of this, Um, Whoever is telling you that does not understand history and has not read it sufficiently to see that the Jewish people had their own liturgy centered around the temple from which the entire prayer life of the church sprung, purified, magnified, and changed by the sacrifice of Jesus and the institution of the Eucharist. All right. Now, verse 2, may my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the gentle rain upon the tender grass, and as the showers upon the herb. You see here two bicolon verses with synonyms, repetition. My teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, that's two synonymous expressions, followed by gentle rain upon the tender grass, showers upon the herb, another two. He's repeating twice. What is he trying to say? His wish is for people to be like good soil, for them to be able to absorb his teaching. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. You know he's not talking about heavy rain. He's not talking about hail, because he mentions the word dew. Therefore, it is the soft rain, the best rain you can have to make something grow. So what is then the intention here? The intention is there from a contemplative standpoint you are contemplating that over time and his words are falling on your soul which is the land and your soul is absorbing what he's saying so that it can produce his fruit. Jesus is going to use the same idea, the same parable inspired Presumably, from this verse. That's my thinking. There's echoes in Scripture all the time when he speaks of the kingdom of, the, of, of God being as a field. Right? Now, th- that's what he's wishing that people can listen. Verse 4: The rock. In Scripture, the word Savior was given to children. God, my Savior, was given to children. Yeshu. Right? Today, People wonder out loud sometimes why is it that some tradition, like for instance the Mexicans, give the name uh, uh, Jesus to their children? Well, in a sense, they're biblical, because Yeshu was given to Jewish children, right? So there is a precedent in, in the Bible where people gave the name of Jesus to their children. Yeah, the name of David was given as well, Abraham, Moses. All these names were given to children. What was the one title of God that no one gave to their children? The rock. No one was called the rock except Abraham. But other than Abraham, nobody. Nobody other than God. Read the Psalms. It's repeated over and over and over and over again. My Lord, my God, my rock, my salvation, right? My rock. Now, that rock, that notion of rock is very rich in, in um, the Jewish folklore and legends. So, for instance, in our legends, they would tell you that the rock on which um, Abraham sacrificed Isaac was actually the primordial rock, the first piece of land that emerged from the waters. That notion of a rock as the thing that will not fail you under your feet, that is solid, that is faithful, that is always there, that defends you, compared to the water which is treacherous, in which you can drown, which contains monsters you cannot even see, has therefore established this notion that the land represents Israel and the sea represents the Gentiles. But the rock, always God. Therefore, when Matthew... Chapter 16, Jesus tells Peter, you are the rock. Now, he rocked his disciples. That was unbelievable what he told Peter. I would have more to say about that if I were to do the study of Matthew, but I'm not right now. Just point out to you that this is the kind of intertestamental, ec, intertestamental echo you have in the scripture. So somebody comes to you and says, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus is telling Peter, you're just a small pebble because he uses the feminine in the Greek. It's somebody who doesn't understand the proper context of scripture. It's as simple as that. There would be, know, be, be more to say about that. But the rock, his work is perfect. God Of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and right is he. That would be a wonderful verse to repeat every day. Especially if you're going through a tribulation, through difficulty. The rock, his work is perfect. You are his work. You are perfect. Jesus commanded us, be perfect. Why? Because you are the work of God. Each one of you is the work of his hands. God does not create garbage. This perfection is not visible. Because in our Western mentality, we want what? Production. We want productivity. We want efficiency. We want success. We want to be able to achieve our goals, hit our, our targets. That's not how God thinks. That's not how it works. Just as the poetry is different, God's whole economy of salvation is completely different. His perfection is done with rain falling down gently in an invisible way. He transforms you day by day even when you're not even aware that He's transforming you. He's at work in your heart to lead you to perfection. That is so important for us to always remember. God, His work is perfect for all His ways are just. Anytime we're tempted To think that what is happening to us is unjust, is not right. Remember this. All all His ways, all of them. Even the ones that might shock us or surprise us or make us say, I don't understand. All His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and right is He. And this is coming out of the lips of a man who the Lord told him, because you hit that rock twice, you will not enter the Holy Land. This is not coming out of a man who to whom God gave a Cadillac and first class service and a a tent with air conditioning in the desert. Yeah? So I don't think anyone has anything on Moses. But that's what he proclaims. Without iniquity, just and right is He. Repeat that. You must be absolutely grounded in that truth so that you could understand all the events of your lives in the light of that truth, not the other way around. No matter what happens to you, God is just without iniquity. All His ways are good. And you are the work of His hands, you are being perfected. Now, in verse, verse 8 and 9, there is a really interesting conversation and discussion. I don't have time to go through it, into all the details. But what is very interesting is that God's benefactions to Israel, God's attention to Israel, began when He divided the human race into separate nations and chose Israel as His own. That goes all the way back to Babel. Babel, we've said in Genesis. And the reason why God chose Israel wasn't uh, because He just did it randomly. It is because... Israel was, according to the lineage from Adam, all the way down the firstborn. You can go from Jacob back to, um, back to Isaac, to Abraham. And then when you go up that lineage, you will hit Eber, who is the father of all the Hebrews. And you continue going all the way up to um, uh, Enoch. And then from Enoch, you will go all the way up to Adam. And we'll study that kind of genealogy in the, in a, in the Gospel of St. Luke. And this is the lineage of the firstborn. This is why he chose Israel. Now, the interesting thing about this, this uh, passage is that when God was allotting nations, essentially what God did, he created nations, and he allotted each one of them to divine beings, to essentially angels. And then from that paragraph here, we have that notion or that, that idea that is present in Catholic thought that the number of the elect is not 144,000, as the Jehovah Witnesses like to think. The number of the elect is equal to the number of fallen angels. Fallen, fallen angels. When, God, when Jesus says, in my, in my Father's house there are many mansions, those are the mansions of the fallen angels. And the reason why it is so, it is because God's work will always be perfect. Hence, when that number is attained, it is the perfection of creation as it was intended from the very beginning. Right? And by the way, in Catholic thinking, and traditions, there are many more angels than there are human beings. Their numbers are myriads and myriads, myriads, millions of millions. Right. Or many, 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 many angels. So, that's all I say about this particular... Um, p- passage. Uh, let's move on. Verse 10. He found him in a desert land, he's speaking of Israel, and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. He's speaking about God finding Israel in a desert land. Now, this obviously trips commentators because God did not find Israel in a desert land. First of all, Abraham was in Turkey when God came to him and spoke to him, and he followed all the way, the whole path. Well, Israel was where? In Goshen, in Egypt, and that's certainly not desert land. It's a fertile uh, piece of land by the Nile. So, why does it say that, why does Moses say that he found it in in a desert land? That is actually uh, found also in the the prophet Hosea, for instance, who refers to God's finding Israel in a desert, and likewise in Ezekiel. So the prophets keyed on that image that Israel was in a desert. Now, there are two explanations to this. Number one, the personal explanation is that obviously the whole Exodus began when what? When God found Moses. Right. That's the beginning of the Exodus. So he found him in a desert land and Moses was living in the wilderness And in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. He's he's talking about himself to begin with. And he's projecting that out to all of Israel. It's a very personal uh, poem. It's not impersonal. Moses is involved in this. And what he's saying is that he, just as God found him, encircled him, and kept him as the apple of his eye, so he did to all of Israel. Right? Right? So then again, if you find yourself in a a desolate place, if you find yourself alone, that passage here, he found him in a desert land. God found him. God went and sought Moses. Not Moses found God. St. John, beloved, this is love. That God loved us first. God came to us with love not us going to God, which is so encouraging because many times we're incapable of going to God. We are under such weight, we have such a burden on our shoulders that it prevents us from going to God. And we convince ourselves that if, unless we do the steps, nothing's happening. But the, the truth of the matter is, Jesus came to us long before we even thought of going to Him. So God came to Moses. God encircled Moses in the howling waste So, in the wilderness. So even if you're living in a howling waste, even if your life seems to have no meaning in your eyes, even if you listen to those demons who are convincing you that you're worth nothing, that you're not important, God comes and finds you in that howling waste. And you can think of Moses. He was a prince in Egypt. He lived a high life. He had everything. His life was perfect. Then he turned into Moses the assassin. He killed the guy, the murderer. Then he ran away. And now he's in the middle of nowhere. He must have had so many regrets. His life in his eyes may have made no sense. How could you be living in Egypt? Like, you know, New York, right? Top of the line. Best life. And then you end up in Alabama, in the middle of nowhere. How do you make sense of this life? God came and God gave meaning. God came and God gave meaning. And oh, by the way, this culture tends to prefer the young, God has a predilection for the old. Moses, what, is in his 80s or 90s when God showed up? So, do not measure your lives by this culture again. God has a very different plan for each and every one of us. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. How close, how closer do you want to be? That's how God kept Israel, that's how he keeps the church, that's how he keeps each one of you, as the apple of his eye. You see, if you start to see this this way, you understand what Jesus came and did and his love for us, then you start to pray that so-and-so may find salvation not, not for that person, but for Jesus. For the sufferings that Jesus suffered on the cross. You don't want any, of his, any drop of his blood to go to waste. to waste, so to speak. You have to be careful with that language. None of that goes to waste. But you understand what I'm trying to say. You want his love to reach everyone because of the suffering he endured on the cross your prayer become Christ-centric and you become less and less concerned about praying But the ones you are around you, your own immediate family, because you become less and less selfish in your prayer. There's less and less about us and it's more and more about Him. And He loves your family and the neighbor's family and the people across the street and the people you don't know and those who are in gangs, and those who are lost, just the same. Meaning his love extends to all. He doesn't keep it only to some. So you want his love to reach everyone, but now your prayer changes. It isn't, Father, may so and so receive the faith because I really want him to be with me in heaven. Not a bad prayer, don't get me wrong. But the better prayer is, may so and so be saved so that your son be glorified. For the glory of your son. This is the message of St. Paul. For the glory of God. St. Paul. Jesus. Right? And the better way you pray is to Our Lady. Because every time you say Mary, she says Jesus. Every time you say Mary, she says Jesus. And her prayer will never be refused. So pray for her intentions. Because they're always the best. Alright. Verse 12. Verse 12. The Lord alone did lead him and there was no foreign God with him. The point here is that God is the only one who led Israel. God is the only one who led Israel across the the wilderness. So what is Israel's business with anybody else? Notice this language again is very much a marital language. A marital language. If, If... you cannot allow a third person to enter between you should never allow a third person to enter between a husband and a wife, ever. I know now these days with social media you have you you might receive some emails coming from people you knew long ago who are inquiring about you. And if long ago you had some sentimental or emotional Or relationship with these people, the right thing to do is to talk to your spouse, so you can dispel this lie. There's nothing in your life to regret. God wants you here right now, so be careful with this. The reason I'm mentioning it is because in the state of New York, the Facebook has been mentioned as the cause of divorce in a third of. In a third of cases of divorces, because, you know, there is difficulty in a couple. Suddenly, the high school hubby contact one of the two spouses, and they start having this sort of a relationship that excludes the other spouse, and that leads to divorce. Faithfulness requires constant attention, constant sacrifice, constant love on our part, because God did it for us first. Now, in verse 19 through 42, God resolves to punish Israel by withdrawing his protection and exposing it to war and natural disasters. That's in verses 21 through 25. He would obliterate Israel entirely were it not that the triumphant enemy would misinterpret its success as a sign of its own power. This is so important because the whole pedagogy of God is in those verses. So, if someone is unfaithful to God, God being just, God will give that person to the exact same thing this person is going for so if somebody wants money god will give this person money a lot of it weird isn't it punishment you see punishment this guy is obsessed by money he wants to make money all he wants to do is money he doesn't go to church he wants to make money so god lets him make money a lot of it what do you think this guy is going to think i did it Yeah, You see the wrath of God at work here? It's terrible. It's not what we think it is. It's not what we think it is. Because in our conception, life on earth is eternity, and eternity is one day. Or maybe half a day. Or an hour, because this is how long we can stand to be in front of God and worship Him. Because we think of eternity as, you know, we're like statues stuck on some pedestal Our hands are folded, our head is kind of tilted, and we are saying hallelujah for eternity. Who wants to do that? So maybe we do it with an hour and we're done. But life here, that's eternity. Well, God gives us exactly what we want. You understand? Yeah. You have this other person who wants to make money, wants to make money, and he doesn't. And he fails, and he fails again, and fails, fails, and fails, and fails. Well, that's a person who's probably beloved by God. Because God is protecting him against that temptation. See how it's completely upside down? Yeah. That's why in the teaching of the Catholic Church, God has a predilection towards the poor. God has a predilection towards the poor. For this reason. So here you can see it. What does he do? He withdraws himself, right? He pulls away. And when he pulls away... Israel says, okay, I don't need God. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to do everything myself. Okay, God pulls away. And now Israel is left on its own. And if it, if it perseveres, it continues running after these other gods, then the Lord will take it all the way to destruction. But he will not completely destroy Israel because if he does, then the other nations would think because of their own power, they did it. And that would be a punishment of the other nations. But God loves all and he wants to bring all to him. You understand? So that's the pedagogy at work in the scriptures. And today it's exactly the same. God rules all nations. Um, so those of you who went to the Latin Mass next Sunday, it was the reading, the reading was on John the Baptist. Right? And in that reading, John tells those who came to him, right? How does he receive them, by the way? Known as the public relation that John has, Saint John. You brood of vipers. Excellent public relations, right? You put the brain. Okay. And what does he say at the end? And, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Notice the language. Not the chaff by their own works will burn themselves by unquenchable fire. Yeah? And the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. He provides that fire. Yeah? So therefore, John's point and assertion is, everything is under the dominion of God. There is no escape. He's the one who raises to heaven. He's the one who brings down to hell. And Moses here is saying the exact same thing. He's the one who blesses Israel with everything they need. And he's the one who brings on calamity. Because this is what they deserve. So verses 22 through 30 describe a justified reversal of the benefactions God had conferred on Israel. Famine and other disasters undo the blessing conferred in verses 10 to 14. God nearly destroys Israel, which he has created in verse 6. And he sells and gives up Israel, verse 30, after having taken possession of it, verse 9. So God, the creator, can do what he wills and what he wishes with his creation. This is another one of those things that we need to really spend time meditating on. The entire teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas can be summarized in this one word creatorhood. That we are creatures. And this is something we rebel against all the time. We don't want to accept we're just a creature. Therefore, our freedom is limited. Yeah, we have free will, but it's not unlimited. Our lifespan is limited. Our talents are limited. Everything has been constrained by God. We don't want to accept that. Watch the culture. You can do whatever you want. Believe in yourself. Do this and then the other, and all that nonsense. We are creatures. We're like a pot. A pot doesn't tell the potter how to create it because it didn't exist to tell the potter how to create it. It's a problem of logic. We are creatures. God is the creator. He's the one who wills to do what he wants with us. Hence, it was so important for Scripture to reaffirm and reassert over and over again that God is good, that God is merciful, that God wants our salvation, that God wants our perfection, because God could have been a tyrant, conceivably, although logically it would not stand the test. But we could think of God as being a tyrant and therefore we would not trust him. That's why scripture reasserts over and over again, no, you can trust God for whatever he does with you is way more than you would ever deserve. Even if you would be absolutely perfect, what God is going to give you is way more, way more than you would ever, ever, ever deserve. Right? This is why Moses is re, re, um, reminding them of this. Now, verse 35. This is quoted by St. Paul. Vengeance is mine and recompense. So this is Moses is speaking prophetically and saying that the Lord is saying, Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamities at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. So notice, God will act in your life to the degree that you are powerless. Another one of those paradoxes. The Catholic faith is all about paradoxes. Virgin Mother. right? God in the Eucharist. Yeah. God, man, a priest, and a sacrifice. You see all these paradoxes, all these joined together. Here's another one of those. God will act in your way, in your life, to the degree that you're powerless. Well, what do we mean by that? What we mean is that when you start to recognize your own inability to do anything on your own, then you're truly giving glory to God, and you're becoming protected from the hubris of vanity and pride and all these sinful and vicious attitudes that take us away from him. To the degree that we're willing to let go and becoming truly powerless, to that degree God can act in our life. How do we know that? St. Paul, right? St. Paul had a problem. We don't know what it is. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed for God to take it away. And God said, no, I won't. Right? I will not take it away. But he gave him the grace to carry it forward, and he glorified God in his weakness, whatever it was. Do you understand? So again, we have that upside down. We think if we are psychologically healthy, if our life is all organized and in order, if everything in life is going the right way, if interiorly we're happy, we're feeling happy, then God must be with us. Well, that might be the case, but in many, many situations, the exact opposite. Interiorly, we may be in a dark place. We may have no sense of God's presence. We, Mother Teresa, right? all these years, not having a sense of God's presence in her life. But look what he did through her, precisely because she didn't have that. So, one more time, if you're feeling powerless, if you think, oh, the world is way too big for me... All these things I cannot do. I cannot do any of that. Well, yeah, that's wonderful. Praise be to God. You're realizing you're a creature. That's very good. Now, if you can build on that, your prayer can be very powerful. And then he ends this with a celebration of God's deliverance of Israel. And again, so you notice, he starts with celebration, with with, with exalting God, and he ends with, I mean, he he calls upon heaven and earth, and then he then goes on and reminds people of the fact that God is just, praising the Lord, and he ends with a prayer of exaltation. So our prayer should always be. We should always start with a prayer of thanksgiving for today, and we should always end with a prayer of thanksgiving, thanking the Lord that he heard our prayer, thanking the Lord that we were able to pray, thanking the Lord that we were able to sit in front of him and bring our petition to him, our concerns thank Him, and to say, I have faith in you. Right? This is so important in the way we approach God and we treat Him. No different than if you were to go visit your mother or your father. If you go visit your parents and all you do is sit down and heap criticism on them, what kind of visit is that? But if you go visit your parents and you thank them, you start by saying, Mom, Dad, thank you for... For something. Find one thing. I'm sure you can find one thing to say thank you for. And before you leave, you also say thank you. We treat strangers this way. Do you walk into somebody's house? He invited you for the first time. This is the first time you're going to see them. They open the door. The guy's standing there. And and, I mean, the man is standing there. The woman's standing there. You walk in the house. You look at him and you say, boy, are you fat. (laughs) Do you do that? No. Oftentimes, we treat God that way. Get on. He is name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, Lord, this is what I want. This, and this, and that, and the other, and this. I'm praying for this, and that, and this, and that. Okay, thank you, Lord. Bye. We don't even treat Santa Claus this way. At least when we start a letter to Santa, we say, Dear Santa Claus, I've been a good boy. This is what I've done. Please give me those things. At least we treat him with some level of respect. But with God, forget it. It just goes out of the window. All right. Now, I'm just going to give you a brief overview of the next chapter before we close. I may do a separate um, lecture, and I'll have this recorded on the website. I won't be able to do it here on chapter 32, but I'm going to give you a brief overview tonight. Um, In the next chapter, Moses is closing his testament, and he does it by giving blessing. He's blessing the 12 tribes. The structure of the blessing is different than what you would see, for instance, in the case of Jacob at the end of Genesis. In the case of Jacob, Jacob started with his firstborn, Reuben, and went down the list, right? By firstborn to the youngest. In the case of Moses, he's more geographically structured, right? He starts with Reuben because this is where he starts with... uh, Let me see. Yeah, Reuben, I was correct. He starts with Reuben because by the time... The Israelites are about to enter the Jordan. The tribe of Reuben had settled in that area. So that was Reuben's territory. So the entire structure of that blessing is geographical. He goes through the whole series of blessings in a geographical fashion. The really interesting thing is that Moses does not derogate, does not move away from the blessing that Jacob gave. So one example I can give you is that in these blessings, you will not find the tribe of uh, uh, Simeon. Simeon is not mentioned. If you go back to the, to the testament of Jacob at the end of the book of Genesis, you will see that, in fact, there is a curse put on Simeon that his tribe may not continue to exist. And in here, the blessing is not even mentioned. And in fact, the tribe of Simeon will be completely absorbed by the tribe of Judah. Right? Uh, likewise, the blessing of, instead of blessing Manasseh and is- uh, uh, Issachar, which are the two children of Joseph, the blessing is given directly to Joseph, even though there is no tribe of Joseph, there are two tribes of his sons. I'm talking about Joseph, you know, the guy who went to Egypt and all that. yeah, the dreams, etc.. Yeah. Um, and so that also mimics the same exact structure that you would find in the book of Genesis. So when you read these blessings, you will see that it follows the same thing. One more comment I'll make right now is that the blessing given to Dan, again, is very interesting because it mentions that Dan is like a lion's whelp. But there's no blessing. Right? And th- these, and, and likewise in Jacob, there is no real blessing of Dan. So there's always this thought among the uh, the you know in a, in a Jewish tradition this is not sacred tradition just human tradition that the final Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan, and if you read the book of Revelation you will see likewise there is no blessing for the tribe of Dan it's completely omitted. All right. All I want to do tonight is just before we close is to go all the way to the end of this chapter and read the few, last few verses. 27, 28, 29. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, Destroy. So Israel dwelt in safety, the fountain of Jacob alone, in a land of grain and wine. Yea, his heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help And the sword of your triumph, your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their high places. This is the blessing of Israel. This is the blessing of the church. This is the blessing that God wishes for each and every one of us. This is a blessed season of Advent. This is the season where we reflect on the coming of the Lord. On His humility, on His willingness to become a man to hide his divinity, and to die as a man on the cross for us. This is a season where we should be able to say, with all the problems I have, with all the difficulties I'm encountering, with all my challenges, I am indeed blessed. Because I can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. God bless you.